teleworking is certainly not new, but because of the coronavirus pandemic, a lot of organizations have been plunged in at the deep end into teleworking without any prior experience, any prior pilot programs or policies. In today's conversation, my guest is John C. Messenger. He is the team leader of the Working Conditions Group within the Conditions of Work and Equality Department of the International Labour Office in Geneva, Switzerland, the headquarters of the International Labour Organization, the ILO. He is responsible for the ILO's work program on working time, work organization and work-life balance. And he specialized in policy-focused research, policy advocacy and technical assistance on these subjects. He is one of the leading experts around teleworking. Uh, his latest book is called Telework in the 21st Century, an Evolutionary Perspective, uh, published by the ILO Future of Work series. And we're going to be talking about that as well in the podcast. And so it's great to have John C. Messenger again with us for the second time, uh, because the ILO has published a guide on teleworking uh, during a pandemic, and this has come out in the fall and it's now available in several languages and so here in this podcast we're going to be chatting to John about teleworking especially for organizations who haven't had any prior experience with it before the pandemic and what are some of the tools and techniques and policies and practices they can now put in place to make sure that going forward maybe in the second wave or third wave uh, they are successful so enjoy the conversation Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Thank you very much, John, for being on the podcast. Uh, welcome and also welcome to all of our listeners. And I'm really excited about this conversation because I think it is going to be so valuable for our listeners to learn about teleworking uh, in a pandemic, but also teleworking in general. And what are the success factors? What are the keys to consider uh, for those who may have been you know, jumping in at the deep end, as I said in the introduction, and, and you were saying it as well. So um, before we zoom on the teleworking guide, I wanted to maybe just get your commentary a little bit on these past few months. So we're recording this podcast in October 2020, um, maybe 10 months into uh, the pandemic for some countries, for some uh, maybe shorter. Uh, and the way I see it is there have been different stages, you know, stage one, March, April, especially in Europe. Massive compulsory teleworking for all, still quite enthusiastic about it. Everybody, you know, jumped in with a can-do attitude. Then stage two, there was summer, school was out, and, and as, you know, the infection rates went down, people relaxed a little bit too much maybe. Uh, they went on holiday and they thought, okay, we can, we can do this. Uh, but now then September, the stage three, I would say, school is back, um, employees seem to be also back in the offices or, or maybe not. So that's that's a question. And then stage four is this um, next stage. So how long can we go on like this? How, you know, we're going to be easing out of lockdowns, then lockdown, then again out. So it's going to be a very uncertain period, which demands a lot of flexibility. So 
Can I just maybe get your take on, on what you think about these different stages and how did you observe and, and view them uh, as time passed? Well, Agnes, I think you did a good job of outlining the different stages which have happened. The thing is, though, I would just say that the stages happened at a bit different times in different places. Um, uh, for example, uh, the massive compulsory teleworking for all, or at least for all were able to telework, happened a bit earlier in Asia, you know, uh, earliest in places like China and Korea um, and Japan, places, you know, in Eastern Asia, because that's where the pandemic hit first. Um, and then, you know, that first stage, March to April, I would even say March to May, um, was what really was the European experience, I think. And then the experience in the Americas came a bit later. Um, and particularly in Latin America, it came significantly later. I would say it came last um, to Latin America. Um, and as a result, I think all of the stages have been pushed back. Um, for example, a lot of Latin America isn't yet in the school is back in person and employees are back um, working um, on site. So it, the, the timing is a bit different. But uh, I think the stages, I think you've hit it right on the stages. It's just the timing has been different in different places. So I think that first stage, I think the best way I can say it is I think it was just kind of like everybody got thrown into the deep end of the pool, um, as we say back where I come from. Um, they don't teach you how to swim little by little, you know, like when you have a child and you take them into the baby pond or you take, uh, you know, a child into the pool, but into the really shallow end of the pool. And they go in little by little, step by step, so that they get comfortable with the water. And I think what happened to us was that everybody was thrown in the deep end of the pool, which is the end where if you don't know how to swim, you drown, you know? Um, and, and I really think while there was a lot of support for people, I mean, and there was a lot of clapping and, and things like that here in Europe anyway, I myself was part of that when I was living in Geneva. Um, we did that every night at like, uh, at like uh, nine o'clock. Uh, I think it was eight o'clock in Paris. But, uh, but really, it was rough. Because if you didn't have previous experience with telework, um, either as an individual or as a, an organization, it was an extraordinarily difficult, wrenching um, adjustment. Um, you had organizations, you had organizations, um, individuals, both managers and workers, that had never, ever teleworked in their life, or very, very rarely. And then all of a sudden, they were forced to do it, not just occasionally, but full time. I mean, and it was mandatory. You had to do it. And the idea, of course, was to make as many positions as possible teleworkable. Now, not all positions, as you know very well, because you're knowledgeable in this area too, um, would, would be possible to telework. But I think they really maximized it, particularly in Europe, in terms of looking at all the positions that could be teleworked. But it... I think, frankly, it's a miracle it wasn't a complete disaster because people weren't prepared. Many of them didn't know how to telework. Many managers didn't know how to manage remote workers. 
and organizations, many of them didn't even have teleworking policies and procedures, you know? So it was really, really, I think, a rough adjustment, particularly at the beginning. I would say it was a wrenching adjustment for everyone to try to figure out, try to figure out how to make this thing work um, so that workers could keep their jobs and so that companies and other organizations could keep operating. But it was a rough, it was a rough go at the beginning, particularly at the first part of that. I think as you got into it more and, 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 and companies and other organizations figured out what to do um, and, and individuals kind of figured out what to do through trial and error, um, things improved. But, uh, but it, was a, it was a rough, rough adjustment made rougher by just how rare telework was prior to the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. A rough adjustment and, and also coupled with the great economic uncertainty, you know, some of the prognosis that was projected, especially in the beginning about how the pandemic will hit the economy and how many jobs will be lost um, created some sense of panic, um, you know, that we're maybe even going into a greater depression and economic crisis than the one that we barely just came out of, right? Absolutely. No, absolutely, and I think that that uh, is not necessarily the case. Is not necessarily the case everywhere in the world. Again, the one we just barely came out of. You're speaking about the European situation. I would agree with you from the European context, but it's uh, not so clear in some other places in the world, uh, like my home country of the United States, um, where you know we had a very uh, patchwork implementation um, of lockdown measures state by state. Some of the worst hit states like New York had very stringent lockdown measures, but other states, for example, many of the states in the South had very little or no lockdown measures initially, which allowed COVID to spread. And of course you had closing of national borders um, in Europe, which you can't do in the United States, for example, or in a country like Brazil either, which is also another country that's the size of a continent. Um, you can't very well say people can't move from one state to another within the same country. And so you had people from, you know, parts of the country that were uh, heavily infected, uh, traveling and infecting people in other, in other parts of the country. And I think that's happened uh, in other countries too, like in France recently um, during the vacation period. But surely there was a huge fear uh, an incredibly deep economic crisis. There was a massive plunge. Um, U.S. is a very good example. It was much, much deeper plunge initially than even the Great Recession of 2008 to 2010. I mean, it was it which was a deep, deep uh, plunge. Um, but this was even deeper, much, much deeper. In fact, it was record setting. It was record setting in much of the world. The U.S. was particularly extreme. Um, so yes, the idea that we need to come up with something, and there were some other measures too, um, work sharing measures, reduction of working hours to spread the, the, the reduced amount of work amongst more people. One of the crisis measures I talked about during the last crisis, the global financial economic crisis, um, were also deployed, particularly in countries such as Germany and France and some of the Nordic countries were also heavily deployed um, but at the same time, um, they were often combined with uh, remote working, teleworking measures as well. And frankly, if it hadn't been for 
this massive resort to telework promoted um, not only by the ILO and other international organizations, but promoted by many, many governments around the world. Um, and frankly, uh, mandated, because when you have governments saying you may not have businesses open in person, but we encourage you to help people work remotely to, uh, if you can, to, to help your employees to, to provide them with the necessary tools to work remotely, then I think, um, then I think what you have is a situation where teleworking, in many cases, was the only option for saving jobs. Um, or it was an option along with cutting working hours to save jobs. But, but Germany is a good example. You had massive telework in Germany, particularly in manufacturing, um, but a lot, of the, a lot of the professional, technical, managerial kinds of jobs, it was teleworking that, uh, that, 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 that really saved the employment there. And some places they were doing both. They were cutting working hours and um, at the same time um, using uh, telework as well. So, yes, it was a really a, a crisis situation. Um, it still is. It's not as extreme, particularly not in some places like here in Europe. Um, even though it seems terrible here, uh, I think it's much better off than, than many parts of the globe. And uh, I think we're just fortunate that companies and other organizations encouraged by governments realized that they had no choice but to give this a shot because the alternative was, um, was an economic black hole. And as a possible response or support to these organizations, the ILO has released just this summer of 2020 a fantastic guide on teleworking during the pandemic. And I just wanted to ask you to maybe if you could share with listeners what is the purpose of the guide, who is it for, what is it trying to really help employers and employees with? Um, who would you recommend this guide to, John? Well, I mean, I, I think that, that the guide is, is really solid but it's not just me. I've had a lot of feedback. Um, as I was telling you before our interview, I just did my first webinar based in the guide for uh, ILO constituents in Eastern Europe um, and Central Asia, and uh, got great feedback. Um, people are really raving about the, the guide. It's already been translated into other languages. It was translated into Russian without me lifting a finger. It was, it was disseminated to... Eastern Europe and Central Asia, and they translated it on their own without even, without even asking me for any support or any financing or anything. They thought it was really necessary and immediately translated it. We're also translating it into, into French and Spanish as well, um, uh, and I think it's going to be available ultimately in other languages too. But I've gotten very good feedback from it so far, so it's not only me that thinks it's a really good tool. Um, but I think what we're trying to do with this tool is to help people figure out how to telework effectively and try to help organizations uh, and their managers to figure out how to manage telework effectively. Um, the purpose of the guide is really threefold, though. It's even broader than that. I mean, first and foremost, is to provide practical, actionable recommendations for effective teleworking practices that are applicable to a wide range of 
but it's also designed to support policymakers in updating existing teleworking policies and then also to provide a flexible framework through which both private enterprises and public sector organizations can develop and update their own teleworking policies and practices. And even though we developed it specifically to respond to the pandemic, that was the impetus for developing the guide, it can still be used beyond the pandemic. What would you say, John, to senior managers or employers who are still on the fence about teleworking? Um, You know, those who are still not fully committing themselves to teleworking, um, even if, uh, you know, that's good for the health and well-being of employees, uh, or those who still might harbor some doubts and resistance. Uh, do you have any surefire arguments that you would use to convince uh, employers, senior managers, that teleworking is the right thing to do for them, especially now for their organizations? I really think that, and I've done everything I can to make the argument um, throughout the period of the pandemic that this is an effective approach. Um, teleworking will, it's not going to necessarily be hugely more productive than working in the office, but that's not the point. The point is that all the available evidence that we see, or at least the preponderance of the available evidence that we see suggests that teleworking, when practiced correctly, that's why the guide and other tools like it is so important. I mean, We're talking about practicing it correctly. Practice it correctly. If you have the proper tools, you know, if managers know how to manage remote workers correctly, based on objectives, based on the results they produce, not simply based on monitoring them or tracking their time, you know, or tracking their activities. I mean, you got to get away from this monitoring mindset. I've read a number of articles talking about this monitoring mindset and managers who are monitoring. Um, and what you really need to do is manage. And the only way to manage teleworkers um, effectively and get the results you need is to do it um, on an objectives basis, managing by results, setting up objectives, um, setting up deliverables and time frames. Um, and and reporting, reasonable reporting, not super heavy reporting, not crushing people with heavy reporting requirements, which has happened in some cases because managers simply fear loss of control. That's what's behind a lot of this. That's what the literature suggests. That's what my own research and other research done, for example, by the European Foundation for the Improvement of Living and Working Conditions, Eurofound in Dublin suggests, Managers feel loss of control. They fear this. And I understand why. They fear it because they are usually the ones, and particularly the frontline supervisors, fear it often the most because they're the ones who are ultimately accountable um, for delivering the results. And if their teams don't achieve the results they're expected to achieve, they're going to be in trouble, which is why you need a good results-based management approach. Things need to be properly set up You need to have good training for both workers, individual employees, in how to, you know, work remotely effectively. For example, how to handle um, issues of work-life balance, um, 
the blurring between paid work and personal life and all these things. And you need to also have training for managers in how to manage remote teams effectively um, because it really is a different kind of management style that a lot of managers are used to and they need to understand how to do it effectively. If you do all that, you can at least be as productive and have as high a performance as you do um, in the office. Now, you might say, okay, well, if it's no better but no worse, I mean, it does vary, of course. I mean, in the vast majority of articles I've read say that the vast majority of employees of these organizations, public and private, have been at least as productive and their performance has been at least as high as it was when they were working in the office. So I think we have more evidence there that we need to go through in the aftermath of the pandemic and analyze. But my, my point really is saying, okay, well, if it's the same, then why should you, then why should you, why should you use it? You should use it because it gives employees blocks really uninterrupted time to be able to focus on their task, to be able to focus on their deliverable. And also, frankly, because it promotes an objective-based approach, because that's really the only way you could do telework effectively, which makes you more likely to deliver the results that you're accountable to deliver. So that, I think, is very, very important. Also, we should keep in mind that the way we did teleworking and the way it's still being done as the pandemic continues to rage around the world, um, we, should not, we should not overlook the fact that it's really, how can you say it? It's really not how telework was designed to be done. Telework should be a voluntary arrangement, not a mandatory. Teleworking, we know from the research that we've done that I've done, that I've done in collaboration with Eurofound, but also that other researchers have done. But it was very, very clear from the study that we did, for example, working anytime, anywhere, the ILO Eurofound joint report, that the sweet spot for telework was not working full-time remotely. It was working half-time remotely and half-time in the office. So you're half-time in the office, you get to meet with colleagues, you get to interact, you know, with other people in the organization, you get to you know, be, you know, go to different kinds of events that nurture the organizational culture, you know. I mean, even if it's things as simple as lunches and coffees together and, you know, individual meetings and discussions, even just to, to go to the, to, to, to the water cooler or the coffee mission to talk with colleagues is part of that cultural, um, is part of that cultural milieu. I mean, so you have... That half of the time for all of these kind of in-person activities and communications and all of that, and then the other half of the time you can just focus on tasks. So it actually works best. Telework is most effective when you work part-time in the office and part-time remote. And that should be, I think, easier for even people who are resistant to telework to swallow. And that, in fact, is the best approach, not to go to full-time telework and certainly not to force people to telework. That's what we did because it's a crisis and because we had to do something to avoid an economic cataclysm. Um, but at the same time, realizing it was not ideal, people didn't have the proper preparation in many cases, didn't have the proper tools in many cases. You know, you know, they didn't have things like 
our new teleworking guide. You know, they 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 just were really uh, flying blind. They were trying to figure out how to navigate a new world with proper preparation. You know, laying the groundwork, having an organizational policy. You know, having the proper hardware and software, providing training to both workers and managers. You can make telework an effective arrangement on a part-time basis, um, and that way be able to minimize the downside and maximize the upside, and at the same time make it probably more acceptable because you're not always working remotely. Managers can meet with you in person sometimes. They can speak with you on site. You can have on site meetings and exchanges of information and communications, both formal and informal, um, within the organization um, if you do it like that. So that's what I'm hoping will be an effective argument. And I frankly expect that although some organizations I've seen, some you know, for example, IT companies and social media companies like Facebook and Twitter are talking about making this permanent for some of their or for a, some significant portion of their employees. I just don't see that happening for most organizations, even those that are empowering, even those that have embraced telework. And frankly, I don't think it makes sense. I am not just a blind advocate of telework. I am advocating and promoting a reasonable, practical form of telework based on what our research tells us. And I'll say it one more time for emphasis, our research tells us the sweet spot, the golden mean, the best way to do teleworking is on a part-time basis. Not no teleworking, not always working in the office, but not full-time teleworking all the time. No, we need a balance. We need time in the office for reconnecting with colleagues and the organization as a whole um, and maintaining the organizational culture. And we need time working remotely for concentrated um, work on particular um, deliverables and tasks. Okay. Thank you very much for this. Um, now, coming to the last question, we spoke about employees and employers, but I would be also interested uh, in your experience with policymakers. Um, and of course, the ILO is definitely also speaking to, to policymakers. Um, we knew, uh, we learned during the first, let's say, half a year of, of the pandemic that Spain was debating legislation to promote uh, remote workers. In Wallonia, in Belgium, they were thinking about uh, setting up a task force on teleworking. Um, so we've been really speaking about employers uh, and managers, but in your, from your point of view, where do you see the role of policymakers, especially in these times? And what would you recommend them to focus on? Because uh, I think it is so easy to get lost uh, in details a little bit. Um, should they plan for emergency? Should they already planned for the world beyond COVID and after, um, where do you think they could focus on? Where should they spend their energy and their thinking? From my perspective, I mean, it, it depends on whether you're talking about immediate crisis or whether you're talking about, I mean, longer term. 
I mean, I think that most governments have done what they needed to do, and that's basically they had to promote telework because they had to do something um, to try to keep people employed and to try to keep businesses operating. So they did, I think, what they had to do in terms of measures designed to promote telework. Um, and some pieces of legislation, for example, not legislation in Chile, which predated the pandemic, but some other pieces of legislation were explicitly designed for the pandemic, like in El Salvador, for example. I mean, they were really only focused on the pandemic. But I think now, what I really think now, what policymakers should be focusing on, in my opinion, is helping um, workers, employers, um, and, and, and others to be able to scale up teleworking. Um, they need to be really trying to facilitate that. They need to be trying to uh, provide frameworks, you know, um, as well as information and support um, for, for workers and employers and the bodies that are supporting them, trade unions, employer organizations, and others, they need to really try to, to give them the tools that they need um, and a framework to be able to, to develop and implement effective um, teleworking um, procedures in their organizations. I think providing up-to-date and reliable, accessible information to all stakeholders um, is very important. During the pandemic, for example, information on occupational safety and health, including ergonomics, getting out information is something that they could do now and continue to do later so that they give people the best available information or to share information developed by other organizations like the ILO, which has also developed information on other issues such as ergonomics and the OSH um, implications of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, they should also be providing diverse forms of financial and other kinds of support. Um, particularly, I think it's justified in terms of small and medium-sized enterprises trying to help support them with purchasing IT equipment, um, offering taxes and financial support. I think you mentioned a measure adopted by Malta for that purpose, the country of Malta. I mean, I think you know, you have to be careful that you don't over-subsidize things, but at the same time, particularly for organizations that are quite small, that might not have the wherewithal financially to be able to provide their workers with the right hardware and software that's important. I think you also, however, I don't want to fail to mention that we need frameworks. And I think new frameworks are important. You know, new Regulations and other kinds of frameworks regarding teleworking provide an important structure within which teleworking arrangements can be developed in specific organizations, both public and private. That doesn't mean, in my opinion, that does not mean that these things should be detailed regulations that are very inflexible, that are very prescriptive. That won't work with telework, definitively not. But what you need, I think, are flexible frameworks of the kind offered by the EU framework agreement on teleworking, the social partner framework agreement from way back in 2002. 
that is still being used today, as you know. So you need things like that. Um, and you need also to make it clear that it's important to offer teleworkers flexibility. And you can put that into these frameworks. You need to offer teleworkers flexibility regarding their working schedules, time sovereignty, as we would call it, um, which is just a fancy term meaning allowing workers to basically um, organize their own work schedules in order to be able to balance their paid work with their personal lives. Um, and with a results-based approach, that's perfectly fine because they are accountable for achieving those goals and objectives regardless of when they choose to work. Um, and I'm sure you can imagine as someone with a young child that it makes a difference if you can work after your child is sleeping or if your child is sleeping or when your child doesn't have other demands rather than having to try somehow to do the impossible, which is to satisfy your child's needs um, and your employer's needs at the same time. You have to have flexibility in organizing your work schedule to be able to do that. And last but not least, I would emphasize involving social partners in the design and implementation of teleworking is crucial, absolutely crucial. In accordance with principles set out in a number of ILO conventions, such as, for example, the ILO Collective Bargaining Convention, um, it's really critical. And what happened, unfortunately, as I think you well know, is that in a lot of cases, there really wasn't much time to consult um, workers and their organizations or employers' organizations about these kinds of measures. I mean, there really was a need to just act on a very short notice. In the ILO, for example, we went from a test on teleworking, um, a test of, 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 of teleworking on a Thursday um, to full-scale teleworking the following Tuesday. So that's three working days. And other organizations probably experienced similar kinds of situations. And if so, there just wasn't much time for those kinds of consultations then. But now there is. Now there's no excuse. Governments should be consulting the social partners, should be consulting trade unions, should be consulting employer organizations on the rules and regulations that should govern telework and also using their extensive networks to share experiences as well as effective tools and good practices. So I think those kinds of things are important and that governments can help um, workers and employers to be able to you know, develop and implement effective teleworking practices. And we can learn the lessons of this pandemic and hopefully that will benefit us in the future in order to have a much better um, and more effective use of teleworking um, post-pandemic um, than we've had up until now. Thank you very much for this really exhaustive insight into policy making and also the developments and you know really highlighting the difference between um, acting as out of emergency uh, but then also taking the this crisis as an opportunity to build on this experience and to get it right really going forward um, thank you so much, John, for being on the podcast. I, I again, really appreciated our conversation and, and you sharing your insight 
uh, so generously with our listeners who I'm sure are going to take away a lot, uh, a lot of information. And I just want to wish you really the best of success uh, going forward. Uh, also with the guide, I know it's been translated in several languages, uh, but also in, in, with your work on teleworking, uh, because I think the world really needs it. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Agnes. Thank you so much. And uh, I wish you all continuing success, uh, as well as uh, Zoltan, uh, your colleague there at the Work Life Hub. You guys do great work as well, and you've certainly been very active during the pandemic, including in the area of teleworking. And I hope that you'll continue forward um, doing the, the excellent work uh, that you do. Thank you very much for joining us in this uh, podcast conversation uh, on the Work Life Hub podcast with John C. Messenger. Thank you for listening and tuning in. We really hope that this pandemic is going as well as possible for you, that you are able to telework, you're able to get your work organized, you're able to continue working and that you're staying safe and healthy uh, is our wish really to everybody right now. And um, if you would like to listen to the other podcasts with John, that's also on worklifehub.com forward slash podcasts. But there are also a number of other very excellent conversations uh, around the issue of work-life integration, work-life balance, boundary management, so a lot of different topics that may be of interest uh, and use to you today. So thank you again and stay safe.